to the Great British Drafting Show. I can't keep this accent up for the entire show, let alone even the intro. My name is Josh Klein, a managing editor of The Riot Report, and I've taken over for the absolutely fantastic Dan Cresso, who is unavailable to host the show. And uh, joining me, as always, from across the pond, and the reason why we call it The Great British Drafting Show our draft expert, our draft guru, uh, analyst at the Riot Report, Vincent Richardson, is here via the Hello. internet. Hello, I am here via the internet. Apparently, is your accent? It, do you, Vincent? Can you give me some sort of a uh, a British slang term that maybe we wouldn't know here in the states? That uh, uh what's a polite one? Um, knackered, which means sort of tired or run down. Okay, so are you feeling fairly knackered right now? I'm feeling fairly knackered, yes. I feel like that, to me... It's been a long day. (laughs) It certainly has over in Pantherland. It has been a long season and a long month. Uh, The Great British Drafting Show, if you are curious, you can go back and check out the archives from last year where Vincent and Dan went through on a week-by-week basis and looked at almost every player in the entire uh, 2019 draft, talked about who they liked, who they didn't like. And uh, we're going to take a moment here to just give an overall kind of state of the Carolina Panthers, not necessarily jump into the draft quite yet, but more talk about what's going on with the Carolina Panthers, uh, where Vincent sees the roster, the the coaching staff, and, and then where they go from here. And um, Vincent, who was your uh, who was your best call in the draft last year? Um, I don't know. Uh, I, there were some who like lots of people liked as well. So like Deontay Johnson was kind of a guy who sort of stuck out as a, a mid round guy. Um, I mean, there, there's a lot of people. Uh, <laughs> I think yeah. So tight ends, I wasn't really. Irv Smith, I think I probably was was closer to than a lot of people sort of a lot of people had it like Fant and um Hawkinson and then and then Smith was a big third but I think he's looked like a legitimate you know serious tight end at the NFL this year um lots of other people Brian Burns was obviously very good uh Chase Winovich is sort of the clear easy one that kind of some people were really high on and yet for some reason went in the third round and has done really well for the Patriots um uh, there are some who maybe are, are going to take a little bit longer. I mean, like Chauncey, again, Gardner Johnson was another one where lots of people were high on um, and somehow managed to slip to the fourth round. Um, but again, it, yeah, there are, there are some positions where it's, it's easier than others. So, And also there are things that NFL teams know that we don't. So the, uh, Anthony Johnson, for example, who I was really high on, um, not maybe that's really a big strong, I, 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 I thought was a, a good receiver prospect. He went somehow. He went from a first-round preseason prospect to undrafted, I think, or very late in the draft. Didn't make a roster, so possibly there's an injury and off-field thing there that just hasn't been published because he just, over the course of about six months, went from being quite highly regarded league-wise to just out of the league entirely, completely. Yeah, and, that's and, that's one thing that you just never you just never know about is we don't know how they perform in these interviews. You don't get to see their medicals. Um, and until kind of some maybe some of these national guys break them or, or sometimes even if you can talk to an agent or something like that. But even an agent is always going to be working in his in his players, uh, in his clients best interest. So he's not going to tell you, oh, yeah, well, I mean, he he has a broken tibia. So that's why he didn't get drafted. I, I think they're going to say, you know, this guy is, is going to be able to uh, contribute on a roster and then. You think it happened to the Carolina Panthers last year? I mean, you look at Brendan Mann was um, during yeah, training he, camp thought of he, as like a guy that can contribute, and then all of a sudden he's now. I, I'm pretty sure he's not even on a roster. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he's out of the league completely. I mean, yeah, yeah, he went from active roster as an undrafted rookie, then went to IR, and is now at, I think as far as I can tell, completely out of the league. But like a great example of of, of like what happens when you do know about it is um, polite, the uh, the edge rusher from Florida last year. Who, because it was publicised that his interviews had gone terribly, and that he had there were all kinds of you know work ethic concerns and that kind of stuff, it was much easier to rationalise his kind of meteoric fall from favour. You know, he he went at the he went into the combine as a mid first round pick, and then was taken I think in the third or the fourth round and got cut before the season started, as far as I remember. But that's one where you understand it because it was being publicised that he'd completely tanked his interviews. Where if it's a player like Johnson, who maybe it wasn't as publicly. Uh, put forward that he'd done that you just you just would never know that that's what happened unless you were inside the league 
Yeah, uh, Chauncey Gardner Johnson, who somehow has now been is being called CJ Gardner Johnson, which I don't really I don't agree with that. It's such an uh, easy CGJ nickname. It's a it's a real a real miss in my opinion. Uh, Vincent, let's talk a little bit about what's been happening. So obviously, you're not listening to the Great British Drafting Show if you don't know that the Carolina Panthers have uh, hired a new head coach, Matt Rule. Um, seven years, almost $70 million contract, the sixth highest paid coach in the league, trying to kind of feels like yesterday in the, um, uh, in the, in the opening press conference, introductory press conference, they talked a lot about synergy and alignment and how David Tepper and, and even now Marty Herney and Matt rule are all on the same page going forward and what they want. And to me, it's it's an interesting look, and I know that if Matt Rule and David Tepper are aligned, that to me kind of says that maybe David Tepper and Ron Rivera were not aligned. What do you think? Yeah, so I, I, you always never know sort of early on whether they're all just playing happy families, and that's you know they're not going to say they hate each other in the introductory press conference. Um, but but obviously Tepper talks a lot before Rule was hired about like the idea of process. And Rule then went and talked about process in his his introductory press conference. And I think that's something that really does potentially separate him from Ron Rivera. And whilst, you know, Rivera's obviously going to go to Washington, and I think he, he can actually be reasonably successful in the short term there, ultimately what, what let Rivera down in Carolina was the fact that there wasn't the fundamental core structure that allowed them to be successful season after season and game after game. They had... Even if you take the 2015 season, they had an immense amount of talent and could knock the crap out of anyone. But there were also periods where if it wasn't quite clicking, it all just sort of fell apart for either drives or half a game or against the Falcons an entire game. That kind of it, it, it was very reliant on, on Cam being fantastic, um, offensively at least. And there wasn't really kind of the, 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 the fundamental process of how you how you win games to fall back on other than just give it to Cam and hope he's amazing. And if you compare that to, say, what, what uh, the, the 49ers do under Shanahan or what the, what the, the Pats have done on, with Belichick, is there's always been this kind of core backbone you can fall back on. Um, and to say, say with the Patriots, you know, there were years, the Randy Moss years, where they threw it all over the place and there was this fantastic dynamic passing attack. But there have also been periods, if you say, look at the the, the, the Falcon Super Bowl, they were, they were down 28 to 3. They then fell back on the really core of their offense, which is the short, quick passing game, getting the ball out to running backs, getting out in space, getting yards after the catch, and just getting five yards every single play, moving the ball, moving the ball, moving the ball. And occasionally you get the big play out of that. And there was always that kind of core offensive structure to fall back on. Um, and that comes out of process. That comes out of understanding how how you win games in a in a more detailed level and then building things to allow you to do that. So you have to have a scheme that has a bit in it that allows you to, 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 to have these kind of reliable, not necessarily spectacular plays, but plays that you can fall back on and get you four or five yards consistently. You have to have the talent to execute it at key positions. You, know, you have to build a structure that is not just based on the talent of a few players, but is a is a core structure that generates success and the players then elevate that depending on their talent levels. Um, And, and and that's what rule could potentially be. Obviously it's very, very projective at this point, but, but that, that that's what he promises to be that Rivera just never was. So before we get into, into Matt rule and what kind of coach you and I, and, and everyone thinks that he's going to be. And um, uh, let's take a look at, before we can find out how Matt Rule can do things right here in Carolina, let's look at what went wrong with Ron Rivera um, yeah. here in Carolina. What do you think was the biggest issue uh, that that Rivera faced? And you said yourself, you know, inconsistencies. There are over the past two years, this team was night and day, and it wasn't just when Cam was on the field. It was the first half of the season uh, over the past two years, eleven and five back half of the season one and 15 combined so what were those inconsistencies with Ron Rivera at the helm so I think the the easy fallback and the thing that Rivera himself talked about in in his press conference was you know they've been unlucky with injuries and to be fair over the course of Rivera's tenure they have been quite unfortunate with injuries but I think the the key thing to note is how they were so dependent on those key players that that 
they they weren't able they were so reliant on star players doing expect you know spectacular things and they weren't able to generate success with just scheme and with structure and and that's you know the Panthers offensive line over the last five years has not been amazing there was one year they went to the Super Bowl where it was quite good and then Michael uh, obviously had uh, the brain injury that affected him and that was his career down and that kind of was the beginning of the downfall of the sort of the, the Super Bowl window um, but if you look say at what what the Pats have had is they've not had a ton of offensive line talent they haven't drafted loads of early offensive linesmen they've often had udfas or players who come from other uh, other teams and they've actually managed to a mixture of excellent offensive line coaching uh dante skarnakia but also uh being able to put players in a position to be successful rather than asking them to be successful because of their talent and i think like say this season the run defense fell apart partly because they were never that good and the scheme transition didn't really go very well and all that kind of stuff but also I think people underrate how much of a loss Dontari Poe was, that when he went out, a lot of things went downhill after that. Like, the run defense was not good in the first half of the season, but when Dontari Poe left, it then became utterly terrible. And that's the fact that you have this fantastic nose tackle, who is still a very good player, but you were so reliant on him being good that without him, you weren't, even with perfectly competent players, you know, Gerald McCoy is, is a good player, Carl Love has been a, a, at least competent player in recent years in the NFL. Vernon Butler showed flashes this year, and we can debate about how good he is. But you you should have been better than you were. Uh, and the reason why they weren't is because they were so reliant on on that spectacular talent holding things together. And that, that has kind of been the, 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 the consistent issue under Rivera was the reliant on, on players to be great rather than enabling players to be great. Um, I think you also have to look at, in terms of like the process stuff, Ultimately, Rivera was never at all involved in the offensive scheme and until the last sort of 18 months wasn't a play caller defensively. And so what that relied on was him having great assistance and that he, he was essentially the guy who, who held everything together and was the motivator and the leader. And that's fine. You can, you can absolutely be a successful head coach doing that. But that relies on you being able to consistently find good offensive and defensive coordinators and actually being able to find good position coaches. And... That, that again, is going to be key with Matt Rule, and we'll get onto that in a bit. But I think one of the biggest failings Rivera had is that he stuck with the same people um, and, and often was went with what he knew and what he was familiar with rather than necessarily being really critical and actually evaluating what was necessary. Like, if you look at the coordinators he's had, it, it, in Carolina, I'm pretty sure every single one of the coordinators um, Rivera hired was either someone he'd worked with previously or was a promotion from a position coach. I don't think there was anyone he brought in who was completely new to him. And that's, it, I don't think it would be fair to say that's nepotism because I don't think it is that as such. I think it more speaks to a real cautious nature and a, a reliance on the familiar. And, you know, while, you know, you, you have to take acceptable risks, you can't be that risk averse. And I think that this is not a move that you would make if you were being risk averse. And I don't think that rule strikes me as someone who is going to be particularly risk averse in how he starts building his franchise. Um uh, and uh, I think that's key that the the actual looking at what you need out of a coach and being really critical about who can actually deliver that rather than someone who, you know, Rivera hired Norv Turner because he thought Norv was quite good and he quite liked Norv. And maybe that's a bit unfair and a bit over exaggerated. But, you know, Norv Turner was available for a while and Norv Turner was available for a reason. That's not because he's bad. But it's because there's, you know exactly what you're going to get. And I think that was very, a consistent theme with Rivera, both with players and coaches, that he stuck with people where he knew what he was going to get. And he didn't promote, you know, players, if you look at the, the 2014 season, he only played guys like Trey Turner and, and Andrew Norwell because the people above them got hurt, uh, particularly with Norwell. Um, and and it, it took, it took things going wrong for Rivera to act. He very rarely took the risks you know greg little only came in when the offensive line started completely falling apart this year they did they and obviously his season with them ended due to injury but he 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 would rather start a player like daryl williams who you know the limitations of but ultimately is a limited player than take a chance on greg little and ultimately those those are risks but i think you have to trust in your process of evaluating and developing players and putting them in positions to succeed rather than just trusting with the, the least risky option all the time. Yeah, I mean, you look at what he did at, with his staff in Washington. I mean, uh, his staff is just a rehash of the staff in Carolina that 
just finished going five and eleven and 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 couldn't win uh couldn't win games down the stretch i mean scott turner seemed fine as an offensive coordinator and but you bring in you know you just pull matsko and sam mills and all these guys up up with you and you're just yeah. running it back and i i think that is one of the things that ron rivera has always believed in. he made it very clear even in his uh going away press conference he said you know i i i do things my way and i think my way works and i proved in his words, he thinks he proved that in, you know, 2015, they won three straight uh, NFC South division titles. Um, pay no attention to the fact that they went seven, eight and one for one of those years. Uh, I, I, and so he thinks that, you know, his system works and, you know, maybe it does and good for him. And it did for, for eight years here. And I'll be interested to see if he's able to turn around um, the Washington franchise franchise the same way but uh the when you look at matt rule and you talk and you hear him talk he just seems he has the same kind of charisma and leader of men um aspect to him that ron rivera had um but i'll be interested to see what he does um from a from a process standpoint from a player management standpoint from a you know all of these things that we talk about sports science and and all that stuff i'm sure there's going to be a lot of articles over the next uh year two years about how different the nutrition is and how different the the sports science and the hydration and and all these things that matt rule is doing to give himself additional edges um but the reality is is that a lot of this stuff has to manifest itself between the lines so um but but i do think just just quickly to stick on like the sports science stuff for for a very brief moment i do think that is really an under like you, you talk about, you know, people say, you know, uh, that, that I can't remember who someone was saying it. I think it might have been Peter King, but was saying, you know, the Steelers were really great. I think it was in the 70s and 80s because they went into historically black colleges and recruited players that other teams just weren't. Um, and that, you know, they, they saw this massive edge where no one else had, had seen one. And if, if, if there is a massive edge in the NFL right now, analytics is potentially part of that. But a major bit is just sports science. Like it, it, it so... I, I happen to know someone who works on sort of the medical side with one of the NFL teams who whose background is not in the NFL but in sort of sports science more generally with other backgrounds. And and he says it, it's just astonishing how, how far behind the NFL is, bearing in mind how much money is in the NFL compared to other sort of sports leagues which have similar amounts of money. The NFL is just miles behind on sports science. And it's... it's I, I don't know how much soccer you know, so I'll try and keep this brief. But Arsene Wenger... I know they Arsene. call it football. I know that yeah. for a fact. I made sure to call it soccer. I was being kind and everything. We're on the Great um, British Drafting Show, baby. You so you you call it football, a uh, little okay. footy, keepers, so, so, kits. I know all the words. So when Arsene Wenger became Arsenal manager in the mid nineties, he football you lost me. Was, I'm out. I got okay. No, But basically, professional football in the UK was still you know very amateurish. There was no sports science. There was no nutrition. Players went out on the piss you know every night and that because you know, it was it was still very much kind of you know. Uh, uh, like a, a local club, effectively, just with lots of money, and he really brought in nutrition and 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 loads of sports science stuff. And for ten years, Arsenal were one of the two best teams in in the country, partly because he was not a bad manager in other regards, but also because they were just way ahead of the curve in terms of sports science and nutrition and all that kind of things and player rehabilitation. And, and if the Panthers can can be the team that makes that step, you know, the 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 lack of fitness training among NFL players is an issue. You know, the, they talk about the Patriots, the fact that they the Patriots do a little bit and that gives them an edulating game. That's been an argument that's been made in the past. And it, it sounds really easy, but but player diet and, and, and how you rehabilitate players is a, is a massive window for opportunity for an NFL club. And if the Panthers can be that club, then that would be fantastic. Yeah, I mean, David Tepper has put his money where his mouth is, literally. Uh, I mean, he came in here and he said any any way that he can give his team an edge he's going to do it and there are so many ways that don't that aren't affected by the NFL salary cap that you can give your team the, give your team an edge and whether that's you know building a state of the art practice facility yesterday at the at the press conference when we talked to David Tever he called it the most advanced practice facility in the NFL um, and I, that would not surprise me and he also said it multiple times is what you when you look at what Matt Rule was able to do at Baylor with limited resources um and how he was able to change not only the the product that was on the field, but the culture around the team and the 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 process that they used to 
produce uh, produce wins and and football and and players and and uh, improve their staff and and the talent level around them with limited resources. Think about what he can do when you give him unlimited resources, and that's literally what David Tepper has. I mean, he's the richest owner in the NFL, and you look at what he's done already. He's um, put the practice bubble up, all these things that were easy and a way to create an edge. And to me, that's one of the reasons why him paying, putting the sixth highest uh, coaching salary into Matt Rule's pocket is just one of those edges. Like, who cares? To him, it's like you're just ordering uh, extra extra guacamole at Chipotle. You know, when they say, do you want guac on it? It's like, yeah, it costs 49 cents, but I, I got to have that avocado. I don't know. Is that is that reference completely lost? Uh, a, a little bit, but I kind of, I get the concept. Yeah, like, you guys think, have guacamole over there. Is it some sort yeah. of weird other term for it? No, no, no. It's, it's we, we, we call guacamole guacamole. Okay. We just don't, don't maybe have quite as much Mexican food as, as you have in, in, in North America for obvious reasons. Um, yeah, so anyway, so he, sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, I, but he, I, but, but, but I, the point is that any sort of edge he can get, that's what he wants to give. And I think that when we talk about alignment and, and synergy, that is what Matt Rule has been doing since since he got into Temple and into Baylor, and he he even said, you know, when when they were when he was at Temple, one of the things he said is it's hard to beat out Penn State because they always have the number one draft pick because their their recruiting was always going to be better. So how could they how could they win in other yeah. ways? And, and, I, and I think like the the other thing that I think is worth noting is like there are there are lots of ways you can invest money in an NFL team that doesn't involve a salary cap that gives you a significant advantage, but a lot of the sports science stuff just isn't—it it isn't costly. You just have to take it on board. Like telling players that they can't eat certain foods. Well, you want to have to get players to buy in that that's actually effective. But assuming you can do that, like it, that doesn't cost you any extra money. You just have to do it. Um, telling players they can't drink—I mean, I, I don't know the exact ins and outs of sort of of, of the NFL um, sort of sports science stuff as it is. But you know, it's little things like telling players they can't drink during the season and that kind of stuff. Or, or having really strict limits on 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 sort of diet and 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 off season training. You know, the thing that I always find baffling is that the the NFL season ends and players just go away and do kind of their own thing. So each one does different training regimens. Some do loads of cardio. Some do this. Some do that. And and there's that's clearly causing an inefficiency because there's clearly some things that are better than others in terms of ways to prepare your body. And what doesn't mean everyone has to do exactly the same thing. If you can kind of create some kind of structure. For, for how players how players like train in the off season and and, and how 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 you sort of help get, help them to sort of set a diet that allows them to perform better. I mean, these aren't things that cost loads of money. What does cost loads of money is say hiring a whole new analytics department of, of forty scouts or you know th- those kind of things cost money. But but sports science like you can see why Rule did it at Baylor and Temple because it's a small school that doesn't have super huge funds. You can do it for relatively cheap, and Tepper will give you advantages in. You know, he can get you the very best nutritionist and the very best this and the very best that. But but the 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 the, the first few baby steps are are things that every team should be doing. And if the Panthers can do that, they could do that in the next six months and with limited effort, and and it would could potentially make a huge impact. Yeah, I mean, you can you can it, the first thing that you have to do is get your players to buy in, and I think yeah. that one one advantage that Matt Rule has, and, and he showed it yesterday uh, at the press conference, and he has shown it multiple times, is he can get you to buy in. I mean, he makes yeah. you want to run through a wall. Even, you know, you can joke about winning the press conference, but this is a guy that's been winning press conferences for every at every stop in his entire career and will continue to do it. I, I the, the thing that I keep thinking is that Matt Rule – you know, probably gives a hell of a halftime speech because it just seems like he is uh, like he is a he is a leader and he has that charisma and that ability that if if he can if he tells you that something is going to work, uh, you you believe him and and I think that that is going to be a huge part of um, of what's going forward and I think that you know the way. It's interesting that he he even said he said it and David Tepper said it both of them that assistant coaches are now reaching out to to them to say hey I want to come to Carolina which is a weird thing when um you know your quarterback is uh in flux and it, it seems like the Panthers are on a cusp of, on the cusp of a rebuild but assistant coaches are saying hey I want to come there and I think that it has a lot to do with with the culture that Matt Rule is bringing and his um 
kind of his leanings in terms of how to move forward into the future. Oh yeah, no, I think if you were a, a fairly young um, coordinator with or, or position coach who had some like you know you had some new ideas and you wanted somewhere where you thought you, you had an environment to actually test things and suggest things and try and try and change how things are viewed. Carolina seems like one of the one of the few franchises where there is a real support for you trying to do that. And they're not the only one. There are other teams that are very um, forward thinking in that regard. But, but you know, you, you don't, you know, th- there are teams where you clearly think if you were a young coordinator who had a whole load of bright ideas about how to, how to change things, wh- why would you go there? Because you know, they're never going to say yes. Uh, and Carolina, as long as you can justify why you want to do something, feels like a place where someone's going to say yes. And that, and that, that means a lot because it means people say things. And even if 50% of them are ridiculous, 50% of them might not be. And, and that's how you get positive changes. You get an environment where people feel they can they can suggest things and push things, and then you just have to have an effect. And Matt Rule's job now is to act as the filter and to to judge what's a good idea and what's a bad idea. Yeah, absolutely. I I guess so. the The next question is, what do you think that? So we talked about Matt Rule off the field. What do you think that Matt Rule is going to bring to the table um, on the field? So that's probably the really big question for everyone right now. Partly because we don't know who his coordinators will be. But also because he's he's never been known as a, a really big exit to nose guy. Like it, it's it, if they'd hired someone like Stefanski or Roman or even McCarthy, you kind of know what your offense is going to look like. You know, you might not like it, or you might have views on what's good or bad. But you've seen it in the NFL. You've seen how it's run. They've run the same things. You know what it's going to look like, um, at least in the broad terms. Whereas Rule, one, he's coached both sides of the ball, so. That that has some interesting things that I think it might be worth talking about at some point. But but also, he, it's not like he has a very clear way of this is how you play football. And he has a really clear schematic identity, partly because in college it's much harder to do that. Um, so obviously, whatever he ran in college will need updating and developing for the NFL. Just because you have, you have more time to prepare, you have more time with players. So one, you actually have the ability to make things more complex. But also opponents have far more time to scout you, far more resources to scout you and players with far more talent, and so things have to be more complex. So, I mean, he said yesterday that I think that he's probably looking to, more towards a 4-3 than a 3-4 defensively, um, which I think a lot of people will find relieving because the, the, if you're going to move to a 3-4, then you have to, you know, the roster needs a lot of change if you're doing that, whereas a 4-3, they're still set up player-wise to kind of run most of that. But exactly what he looks like, how much, you know, whether he runs zone or man is kind of very much up to who he hires as a coordinator. And I think this is this is something to, to, to come back to is the idea that Matt Rule's selling point is his ability to see the big picture and to kind of act as this overseer and director of the the team rather than the guy who is getting stuck into exactly what the route combinations are on a particular play or whether the left tackle kicks out or, or crashes down on a particular run play. He's going to have to hire someone to do those details probably because he can't do everything. And so who he hires will probably determine an awful lot about what this team looks like and also how good this team is ultimately. If if he gets the coordinator positions wrong, he either has to have the awareness to move on from them or that's going to limit where the Panthers can can get to. And you know, that that's that's not necessarily a negative. It's just it, it does then mean you have to be good at, at finding people. And hopefully he is, but also he has the advantage that it, having come from college he has a wide probably a much wider experience of different types of coaches and different coaches and so if, if you're looking for a, for a for a team to suddenly come along and bring in 10 new position coaches who've only ever coached in college Matt Rule has got as good a chance of anyone as doing that maybe, maybe Kingsbury might be the other guy but you know I wouldn't be surprised you know, he's talked about his, his staff being diverse in terms of NFL and, and college coaches but I think they would do well to try and tap into the, the the coaches who haven't yet got their chance at the at the NFL level, and to to maybe try a few names, whilst also obviously having some NFL coaches to sort of develop those those ideas to more of a pro style system. I think that you do, and this is obviously this is just my opinion. I think you 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 he would be he would behoove himself to bring in somebody that has not maybe not a ton of NFL head coaching experience but at least has been an NFL head coach so he has somebody to bounce ideas off of so he has somebody to 
go to and say, hey, um, our starting corner just got a DUI. What should I do? Like these kind of questions that you don't know until you have to answer them yourselves. And that was one of the things that Ron Rivera said that he was um, – that he felt like he had made a mistake when he first started, that he didn't have a a former coach on his staff. Um, But one thing that he was good at is he was able to bring in, he brought in Sean McDermott as defensive coordinator. And, you know, fantastic. Absolutely. You you look at Ron's initial staff and he, Chudzinski and, um, and and McDermott was, was knocking out the park to be fair to him. Yeah, absolutely. Nailed it. And, you know, this is a guy that McDermott was someone that was fired as defensive coordinator at the Eagles before coming to Carolina as the defensive coordinator. So it's not as if he was some sort of young up and coming coach. I mean, obviously he was at, for some reason, for, uh, at some point was a young and up and coming coach, but he wasn't necessarily like the next hot guy. It was a, it, it was someone that was obviously that had been on the outs and was brought back, um, and, and, now obviously is a successful coach of the Bills, so I think that who who Matt Rule brings in on his staff is going to ultimately you know is going to decide a lot of how successful he is. I mean that that is you are as a head coach, you are the CEO, and you have to bring in uh, people to manage each part of your team. And if you bring in the wrong managers, then your the whole system is going to crumble around. So I think that he's going to bring in somebody. To me, that you know, David Tepper wanted to put his stamp on the football side of this, and Matt Rule is that stamp. And now Matt Rule is going to put his stamp on this team, and those coordinators are going to be his stamp. I think that there's also a lesson potentially to learn from the McDermott thing. So you know, you are right that he obviously he'd been let go by the Eagles beforehand, but he I think he was in his early 30s when he was let go by the Eagles. And while obviously just because you're younger doesn't mean you're better, but I think there is a big difference between looking at guys who haven't quite worked really early on in their careers and guys who consistently haven't worked. So McDermott probably got things wrong as a DC in Philadelphia. I can't claim I'm particularly familiar with his works. But you learn from that when you're 35 in a way you probably don't when you're 55. Um, you're able to adjust and and really think different. You know, you're still young enough that you're open to new ideas in a way that maybe as you get later on in your career, you're kind you know, a great example is Wade Phillips. Like you could hire Wade Phillips and you know exactly what Wade Phillips is going to do because Wade Phillips runs the same defense. You know, he's going to run quite a lot of man. He's going to run a three man front. He's going to try and get a lot of pressure. He's going to have a deep safety who covers the middle of the field. And he's going to try and force you to throw the ball down the field against tight man coverage whilst also trying to get you on your back. And, and you know, that, that that's fine. That doesn't, it's not mean that doesn't work, but if, if you're in a team where that starts not working because you haven't got the players for it, it's unlikely that Wade Phillips at 72 suddenly starts adjusting the scheme he's been running for the last decade. Whereas, well, decade plus, really. Where, whereas someone like Sean McDermott, when you hire him, is maybe more flexible in, in understanding where he went wrong the first time and still infused enough to try and change. And I think that, that would, it would be interesting to see what the age profile of his staff is like as well. Because while, you know, I know he's talked about the, the DC he had at Baylor, who was, I think, uh, an older guy. But but if you can maybe particularly with position coaches, guys who've got got newer ideas about about how to do things, and they might not get it all right, but they probably stand a better chance of learning from the mistakes they do make. And if they don't, then you can move on in a year's time and find someone else. Yeah, absolutely. How do you think that the uh, the roster as it stands fits into um, to what Matt Rule is going to try and do? I think it sounds like he's going to sort of almost change what he wants to do around the players he has which i think is absolutely the right thing to do so you've got christian mccaffrey so you should probably involve your running back in the passing game quite a bit um you've got curtis samuel so you probably should run some deep routes and you've got dj moore so you probably want to to run some some routes where where there's a chance of yards after the catch and where you he can use the things that he does best you know separating at the catch point uh, and and attacking the ball in the air and also running after the catch you know you, you want to make the most of what you've got um, and I think Matt Rule will want somebody who who can be flexible around what they have rather than having this clear philosophy of how you play. Um, obviously, there are things that need fixing on the roster. Um, the quarterback is going to be an ongoing conversation and it's not going to change in the next week, but, but that is going to determine a lot of what happens with this team in terms of the path they take. Um, I think, you know, obviously if they... If they do move on from Cam, then I think there are going to be a lot of veteran players who who are on the way out as well. 
partly because the team will then be going through a rebuild, but also guys like Gerald McCoy and Trey Boston have kind of made it pretty clear that that that, that Cam is a big reason of what makes this team special. Um, and I think they're not totally off on that, but but I think they're there is potential for a, a more thorough rebuild, in which case you just start accumulating talent and seeing where it fits. Um, if you're trying to build around the team you have currently, there are clearly a lot of skill position players uh, on the offense, but you also have an offensive line that you can't just ask to pass protect for, for five seconds. And defensively, you've got some really nice defensive linesmen. You've got some really good young edge rushers. You've got a great pair of linebackers, but the back end is still a bit in flux, particularly with Bradbury as a free agent. So, you probably want a scheme that that protects the back end more. Um, so you, you know, you, you you, it will depend who he hires, how much this scheme, the, the player pool makes sense. But if, if Cam does go, then I think the player pool almost doesn't matter, other than the few players who are going to be here as stars in five years' time anyway, because everything else is going to kind of be built again from the ground. Yeah, it, it does seem to me like you know, David Tepper said sometimes you got to burn things down or tear things down to build back up. And it, it does seem like that is kind of where they're at right now. And to me, if you are going to, and obviously we're going to talk about draft and I'm sure you're going to sway me with your smarter opinions. But to me, um, I think that if uh, now is not the time to take a quarterback um, unless, um, it, but if Tua is there at the seventh pick, I, I think maybe that is a guy that might make sense. Um, I, I obviously haven't done work on him or on Herbert, or but just off the top of my head, obviously there's the there's Brown from Auburn that everybody loves at the defensive tackle uh, might be yeah. a good fit for them. You know, obviously they need help up front, um, kind of on both sides of the ball. But when you look at this offensive line, I don't think it's going to change from a roster perspective, at least not at the top. Um, it would be no. silly, in my opinion, to give up on Greg Little, a second-round pick, a guy that you traded oh, up no, for. No, no. Greg Little looked promising. Um, I mean, you also have the fact that you've got a new offensive line coach. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I have some uh, mixed opinions on John Matsko. So I think you also have to see what he's like with a different coach. Um, I don't think Matsko's bad. I just think he taught a very particular set of techniques which did not make sense with Greg Little. Um Sure, I think you, but you also have to look at. So Matt Paradis was obviously was asked to do a lot and yeah, did not they, perform they up to expectations not for eight million dollars a year, whatever. Uh, whether whether or not that was a victim of scheme and the guys around him, or if it was, um, or if it, he just simply played poorly, he's not going anywhere. I mean, they would they would no, have no. to pay him tens of million, uh, over no, ten million dollars. And I think I think you'd be a fool to because whilst he didn't have the best season, I don't think he just completely fell on his face. Um, so tell me, tell me why you think Matt Paradis um, was so, better than maybe what other people are thinking. So the Panthers have had this habit. I, I wasn't. I was, still, it's hard. It was hard to sort of pin down which coaches it originates with, but they've done it since Shula left. So I think Matska must have something to do with it. In their protections, they have a tendency to help a lot and go massively out of their way to take pressure off the weakest blocker um even if it nearly like kills the the whole protection um and so what they would do quite a lot in protect basically they asked matt paradis to cover up for other people's limitations um and that's something they've done in the past if you go back to to the season when daryl williams made all pro it was partly because they were asking trey turner to play out of his mind trying to help him on a lot of pass protection snaps. You know, they'd ask Trey Turner to initially double onto the center and then kick right across and play the edge as well. Um, but it's basically with Daryl Williams just making sure he didn't get beat around the edge with Turner then coming in to, to, to cut off the inside rush lane. Um, and they did the same thing with Paradis. They also did the thing with Paradis where they get him to kick across and block the edge. So basically him playing right tackle or left tackle, which is nothing I've ever seen a team do with a, with a center before. And like if you you know the first couple of times you see it, you think it's kind of like oh this is a bit of a quirk they're just trying to confuse the defense. But they were doing it sort of you know enough times that this seemed like a, an actual thing they were trying to do in pass protection was get Matt Paradis one on one with edge rushers. And you know don't get me wrong, there are things he can do better in the run game in particular. He 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 needs to play with a better pad level and all kinds of stuff. But th- this was not a this is what I go back to with like the, the whole process thing is this was not a team that put its players in the best position to be successful. And rather than adjusting things in terms of the route combinations and how you look to get out, get the ball out from the quarterback because the offensive line is limited, they just asked the offensive line to do 
incredibly complex and difficult things to try and compensate for the fact that it wasn't very good um and that leads to all kinds of further complications and they did the same thing with with, with Van Roten at times he had issues where he was being asked to help when Daryl Williams was playing left tackle against the Bucks they had Van Roten trying to like help onto edge rushers after kicking onto the one tech like playing on the one tech uh, one tech you know all kinds of really difficult things for like things you see elite guards doing and you think that's really good but also when you just ask normal NFL players to do that tends to end really badly and yes, I do think the Panthers need to address the offensive line in the draft. And there are some, particularly as you get towards the end of the first round, into the second round, there's, I think that's where the talent in the the, the the offensive line is this year, is those kind of slightly developmental, but still really quite good prospects. Um, I think in terms of like the, the first round pick, if we're going to discuss this very briefly, I think the quarterback idea, I think, is right, that... that the way you build a franchise is not by just hitting on a quarterback and then putting everything else around them. If if you look at the the quarterbacks on rookie contracts in the playoffs this year, they're almost all t- players who were drafted by already good teams. Like Josh Allen was drafted by the nine and seven Bills, and then is making the playoffs as the ten and six Bills. Uh, and you know Deshaun Watson, the Texans traded up for a reason because they had to trade up because he went you know they were already a good team. The Chiefs traded up from Mahomes because they were already a good team with Alex Smith. They built good teams and then used the draft to upgrade the quarterback rather than trying to sort of treat the quarterback as some kind of messiah who was going to save everything and then they just stuck people around them. And I think the Panthers would be wise if they are going to rebuild, not to just grab every quarterback they can and hope one sticks, but rather to just take the best player, take the best player, and then when when you're kind of in a position to trade up and take a quarterback or when a quarterback just falls to you who you love, to take it then. Yeah, but Obviously, if you the, if you the flip side of that is if you love someone at seven, you take someone at seven. That's you don't what pass I was on a great quarterback just because because they're a quarterback. But teams talk far more often. Teams talk themselves into quarterbacks than talk themselves out of quarterbacks. I'll put it that way. And actually, if you look at the quarterbacks in the playoffs this year, most of them weren't like high first round picks. Aaron Rodgers wasn't. Garoppolo wasn't. Breeze wasn't. Uh, Wilson wasn't. Uh, Cousins Lamar. wasn't. Wentz was. Lamar wasn't. Uh, Mahomes was, but they traded up for him. Uh, Watson was, but they traded up for him. Um, you know, Brady obviously wasn't. You know, what? I thought he but, was a high pick. I haven't but, really but, heard that anything about him. But the playoffs is is not full of like top five quarterbacks, and and there's it's not because top five quarterbacks are bad. But ultimately, if you stick a quarterback into a terrible situation, they're not going to succeed. And there are exceptions: Andrew Luck, Cam Newton, you know, Peyton Manning are all really, really good quarterbacks or have been really, really good quarterbacks. Um, but but the idea that you, you can just hit on a quarterback and that solves everything, unless you do hit on one of those generational talents who just solve all your problems, you know, you have to have a good team around them as well. And even even Cam Newton, I mean, he didn't solve their problems immediately. I mean, they, they yeah. obviously, the team got a lot better, but it was a it was a culture change and, a, and it took... Th- three years before they went to the playoffs and then yeah. was it three I mean, years I mean, yeah three years so right? it was the third season but yeah. i mean the team he took over was catastrophically awful um you know the panthers in 2011 apart from sort of candy and steve smith greg olsen uh, and a few others was was it wasn't just not a great team it was an abjectly bad team um so there, there are kind of extremes whereas andrew luck obviously inherited an already kind of good team just without a quarterback um obviously maybe not a Super Bowl kind of a team, but you know, you, you want to step into a good situation as a quarterback, and there aren't many examples of quarterbacks who step into really poor situations and and suddenly solve those problems or really drag the team up from from the bottom. Okay. You know, so we can talk about obviously you can't have a podcast without talking about Cam Newton, um, no. and uh, you can't really talk about the future of the Carolina Panthers, and you can't talk about basically anything. Uh, in Carolina without without first at least examining a little bit of what is going to happen with Cam Newton. I've been on the record um, in, on some of our other podcasts, uh, One Day Contract. I encourage you to check that out wherever uh, podcasts are sold um, and, and, and kind of everywhere that it doesn't really make sense for Cam Newton to be back in a Panthers uniform next year. When you look at the two main resounding questions uh, to me are, will Cam Newton play um, on this final year of his contract without any sort of uh, guarantee that he is going to um, get an extension or 
uh, or, you know, is going to, I, I think that he wants an extension right now. And I think that the Panthers do not want to give him one without seeing that he's a hundred percent healthy. And so they're kind of at an impasse and, and it might make more sense where another team, um, <coughs> Raiders, uh, might, um, might be willing to take a chance on, on Cam Newton and, and think that, you know, if he is completely healthy, then you're looking at a um, that you could theoretically be getting 2015, 2016, 2000, beginning of 2017-ish uh, Cam Newton. And I think that the Panthers, everything that you have seen over the past year, they don't think that he's healthy. And I think that they don't think that he will be healthy again. And so that is why you're hearing – because they yesterday was – or uh, the Matt Rule – introductory press conference was even more down the road of not willing to commit to Cam Newton and whether or not they will, because you never know. He he could come back in in March and say, Hey guys, I'm going to play out the last year of my deal. And then we'll just see what happens after that. And if that's the case, then I think you roll him back out there for $19 million a year. Yeah. But to me, I don't think that's what's going to happen. And I, obviously we're playing tea leaves but there's a reason why whenever you hear anybody in that building talking about cam newton it's followed by the phrase if he's healthy when healthy a healthy cam newton if he can come back healthy all of these caveats are the phrase that pays because if he can come back healthy he's a different quarterback but if he can't come back healthy then it probably makes sense to get what kind of value you can from him during this offseason and what kind that brings to the million dollar question what kind of value do you think that he has around the league so yeah i think there are sort of two points there i i think the the first i think is actually people are maybe asking slightly the wrong question the question isn't is he healthy it's how healthy is he and i know that sounds like sort of being facetious and pedantic but i i think there's enough evidence at this point that the cam newton we have is not like 2015 pre-injury Cam Newton. And I think it's important to note that 2018 pre-reoccurrence of the injury Cam Newton was not as good as 2015 Cam Newton. He has never got back to that point in terms of health. His arm was extremely strong in 2015, and it was maybe 90% of that in 2018. And that means he still got a top-tier NFL arm. Like This is the point, is that not fully healthy Cam Newton is still an elite NFL quarterback. The question is, how not healthy is he? Because I don't think there's anyone with much sense is saying, well, he's going to be exactly like he was before two shoulder surgeries and um, uh, uh, a foot surgery. Like, I I don't think the idea that he's just going to miraculously be fully healthy, same as he was when he was 25 type guy. I I, I just, I, I can't see how there's evidence to say that that's what you've seen. However, it's more about how close to that can he get. And I think that's the... the, And how long does that last for is also then the caveat to that. Um, And and I think that's the bit that's really stymieing the Panthers because if they're getting 80% Cam Newton, you don't trade 80% Cam Newton. That's still a a significantly above-average NFL quarterback. Um, Even though he's probably not going to be the mobile guy as he was, say, five years ago, that's understandable, but just operating from the the, the pocket... His accuracy, his touch, his understanding of of, of route combinations, his ability to read the field, and and also the work he does pre-snap. If if he's if his arm is at a point where he's good enough, then I I think that's still a, an asset. The issue comes is if, if it's not even that. If if his arm is just it, it's the beginning of the end, and it might start the season at seventy percent, but by halfway through you're at fifty percent, and you. you if you do make the playoffs, you're then dealing with a Cam Newton who you've either had to rest for large chunks or whose arm is just dead. And I'm not saying I'm, I'm not saying that's the case. I think that's just the, the fear that Panthers have is that even if he is not injured right now, that he's just not the same player. Um, I think in terms of trade value, then the issue comes is do other teams have those fears? And I think actually that the the best chance for Cam Newton to be in Carolina is if he doesn't think he has a chance of getting a starting job somewhere else that it, that if if the if the market for him isn't as as hot as we think it might be then i think cam newton would rather play one year with 2 million guaranteed and the chance of making 20 than to just 
be a guy somewhere as a back. You know, he could he you know. I know people said that you know the Patriots might go after him and stuff, but if if the Patriots go after him as a backup, does he want to sit behind Tom Brady? And sure, you might get five games when Brady goes down, or you might get a chance, but but there are only so many teams that are in the market for a starting quarterback and are willing to say pass. You know, if you're the Browns, I I I think you should take a chance on Cam Newton. But they're not just going to throw away Baker Mayfield. Just the, the way NFL politics works, a GM is not going to just get rid of his prize asset who he spent the first overall pick on two years ago. I know it's a new GM in Cleveland and that might change things a little bit, but teams with bad quarterbacks don't always get rid of them for other reasons. And so there are only a limited number of teams who are, you know, the Bears have probably got to a point where they could get rid of Trubisky and the fan base aren't just going to scream at them. Whereas if the Jets trade... Um, what's his face, whose name I'm just completely blanking on, Donald. I, Jets fans probably will not be very happy at the fact that they've, you know, traded, you know, got benched a 24-year-old top three pick it, it, after two seasons to, to get a potentially injured 30-year-old. I, I, I think that limits it down to teams like the Raiders, like the Bears, like the Chargers, where you have an otherwise talented roster but the quarterback is kind of holding you back. And it's a quarterback that you can foreseeably move on from without the sky falling. Well, um, that's, that, that is an interesting way to look at it because you mentioned the Bears and how their fan base wouldn't, wouldn't kind of retaliate. And I wonder, and I don't even wonder, I think that the Carolina fan base, and it's certainly something to think about and uh, something that I'm sure has bothered David Tepper and, and is in his mind as we speak is that I think that the fan base would at least a large portion of it would be extremely upset if the Panthers moved on from Cam Newton, especially if he were to go somewhere else and have a, um, a vintage cam type season. And I understand that the, the idea behind it is not whether he can have a vintage cam type season next year. It's whether if you sign him to a five-year deal and you're paying him $37 million in 2022 and he can't, that's yeah. when you run into more of a problem. And, and that's why you saw not, Tepper name check, or not name check, contract check, I guess, Jared Goff when he said, we don't have a $36 million mistake yeah. on the roster. Yeah, and I, I think it comes back to process again. The, ultimately, as a process, you have to work out, and, these, and ultimately we don't know the information to do this, so we can't even begin to, but you have to know, right, what is Cam Newton's medical state? You've got all kinds of, if you're the Panthers, you have loads of medical opinions, you know what the likely says, you know, and obviously there's a range of outcomes, but you, you have a better idea of that than we possibly do, or we, we definitely do. Um, and you, you also have an idea of, of, of where your team is otherwise and what cap situation and what things would cost. And ultimately you just have to look and go, is this player worth this money? And even if it's politically a really toxic thing to do, sometimes those are things you have to do. And I, I, I should stress, I'm not saying they should necessarily trade Cam Newton. I'm, I'm, I, don't, I don't think we know what they should do because we don't have the medical information. And that is that is literally the only thing that matters in this equation, really. Um, but if if you've got a player, you know, say the Chargers, the Chargers could extend Philip Rivers, but Philip Rivers is clearly, you know, his play is not what it was. And not just that, it's, it's abjectly holding the team back. Uh, 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 and and so you, you you have to move on as, as as much as he's meant for that team over the last 15 years you can't keep paying someone through emotion and i i think i i think a lot of fans will be very annoyed if they trade cam newton and i think possibly rightly so in terms of the the waste that that has been the talent they have had and what they've done with it i think you should be more angry at the the failure to do better by Cam Newton to this point than the fact that Cam Newton is now no longer, or potentially no longer the asset that, that he once was. Um, I, 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 ultimately, I think you, as an owner of a team or as a GM, if you, if, you, if you think trading Cam Newton is the right thing to do from a team-building point of view, I, I don't think you shouldn't do it because fans are going to be annoyed. Because ultimately, fans will possibly be more annoyed in three years' time, if you're sitting here with Cam Newton earning $35 million a year and just not a, a, a viable NFL quarterback, 
or if you're sitting here with this huge pile of dead cap because you've had to release him because it's clear that he's never really going to be the player again. I, I, yeah, I think I think you have to be. You know, this is the process type argument that, that you have to be un, you know, unemotional about these decisions at some point. Um, and that's, I think the hardest thing with Cam Newton is the fact of you look what he was five years ago, and you think how did they manage to screw things up so badly that there's even a debate that they're potentially moving on from this player. Yeah, no, that that makes total sense. So if you're so if if Cam is going to come back, then obviously you're just you're you're retooling the roster. But if he's not going to come back, you're rebuilding. Yeah. That's yeah. and that is something that, you know, everybody wants to be scared of the term rebuild, but if you're rebuilding, what do you do with the veteran players that are already on this roster? Um what do you what do you think you do with guys like K1 Short, Trey Turner, um, do you do you need some veterans in that locker room just to to get you through this time, or do you just burn it all down and try to get you know fifty three of the youngest guys you can on your roster and uh, and and bottom out before you can go back up? So I would say you definitely shouldn't do what the Dolphins have done because that's not smart at all. You you don't try and be as bad as possible. What you do is you try and look at talent that's going to still be talent in two or three years and make sure you keep that at a reasonable price. And then for players who aren't going to be good in two or three years, you either keep them as mentors or you slowly move on from them. And I, I think there's also the... So say say Greg Olson and Dontari Poe is probably quite a useful comparison. So Greg Olson clearly has one, maybe two years left if he wants to play. And there's a chance that he just walks away into the sunset and, you know, that's fine. I, I would not blame him for that in the slightest. But if Cam Newton, sorry, if Greg Olson wants to keep on playing, I I think he, whilst he would be a fantastic player to keep around as a mentor and as a leader in the locker room, I think there's a pretty good chance he just says, if I'm going to just, just trade me or cut me. Like, I, I you know, if I'm going to spend the last two years of my career sitting on a rebuilding team, then I'll just retire. I, you know, I, I want to be, if I'm going to play, I want to play for a team that has a chance. And I think at that point, part of building a good culture is treating your players properly. And if you've got a player like Greg Olsen, who has done a huge amount for this franchise and is going to be in the Hall of Fame with almost 100% certainty, you don't force him to spend his last season playing for a team that's not competing. Um, so I think there are some guys you almost move on from out of courtesy. Uh, you, you don't try and bring back guys just because you can. Um, but I also don't think you get rid of people just because you can either. You know, The Panthers could save Cap by cutting Dontari Poe. However, Dontari Poe is coming off an injury and has no trade value right now, really, because of that. However, he's also shown himself to be a really quite good player over the last sort of 18 months when he's healthy. And it isn't like he's had a whole series of injuries. He's had one kind of unlucky injury. So if you get Dontari Poe back, you might as well start the season with him because you're not really going to use the cap space and anything else and there's a chance that he plays really well for five weeks and you have a tradable asset and, and so i think you have to and maybe your team's better than you think like you, you could do an okc thunder and actually suddenly you're, you're not as terrible as everyone thought you were going to be and actually you can start making a push for the playoffs and why not you know, if, if you can make the playoffs make the playoffs but you might as well keep if you have players like Kawan short and Ontario Poe, who obviously injuries mean they're very low trade value as it is. But those are older players who still have a value to a competing team. But there's no point shipping them off as soon as possible. You might as well ship them off when their value is probably highest, which is going to be before the trade deadline, really. Because if there's a contending team that wants a nose tackle, Ontario Poe at $10 million or $5 million for half the season is actually pretty good value. Or Kwan Short, if you're a, you know, if you're a team that wants to compete and you get halfway through the season and you're just lacking an interior pass rush, Dontari Poe, not Dontari Poe, Kwan Shaw is, is, a, is a potentially good investment. And again, the Panthers should not be looking to just trade every single asset they have. But if you are rebuilding, you do also have to be critical that players who are playing into their early 30s probably don't have a ton more time left in their legs. Yeah, And so you do, you do have to be sensible with 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 who you keep and who you move on from but it but you don't go to either extreme of just well keep everyone and try and win as many games as you can because that's foolish but also don't just trade away good players for the sake of it to me you look at this offense i don't think is going to have a ton of uh turnover aside from obviously at uh whether it's the quarterback position um 
but I still think even with the quarterback position, you're looking at Kyle Allen and Will Greer and probably another quarterback to start over both of them. Um, but I think, I think you might you might end up with one of Allen or Greer. Well, it's just that Allen is so Allen is so cheap as an exclusive rights free agent and has has value as someone who has started in the NFL. And Will Greer is <sighs> is uh, see, a third see, round pick, he, and it's too early to give up on him. So, but is it like like? But the, 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 these are the things about like the process. Like y- you have to the rationale for keeping Will Greer can't be that well we sunk an asset into him. Yeah, but that's because, not that's not how the NFL works. Although no, maybe no, no. it's the way that Matt rules Panthers work. Who knows? Yeah, but but I think I think so. It, it, obviously, it depends. But say say okay. So just purely hypothetically, say they move on from Cam Newton, they they sign Mario to, to some cheapish deal, um, and the then Maserati. they draft some, they draft somebody in like the fourth round as a quarterback, like, like basically like a Will Greer twenty twenty, effectively. Sure. But hopefully, you know, slightly better than Will Greer. Um, do, do you keep Will Greer for the sake of it? Do you, like, if, if you've got the guy who is going to start in the short term in Mariota, and you've got the guy who is going to be at least this the latest developmental project in you know, Cole McDonald or something. Do, do, you don't keep four quarterbacks for the sake of the fact that you sunk a third-round pick into Will Greer. If it becomes clear that Will Greer is not good enough, you can't just keep him around because you once spent a third-round pick on him. And I'm not saying that is going to be the case with Will Greer, but but you do have to make those decisions. If you know, we haven't seen anything of Jordan Scarlett yet at all. If if Jordan Scarlett is clearly not one of the three or four best running backs in training camp, you don't keep him because you spent a fifth-round pick on him a year ago. And and if Will Greer, you know, if you're rebuilding, you just have to make those decisions and sort of lump it or leave it, because because you can't you can't you can't keep this is this is the, one of the big takeaways from Rivera's era. He kept players far too long. Amini Silatolu had so many chances on this team, and whilst he wasn't catastrophic as a rookie, like at no point after like season two or three did he show anything that makes you think that is a player you want to have as part of your long-term plans. And yet he kept coming back and he kept coming back and he kept coming back. And some players, you know, Greg Van Roten and Andrew Norwell both only got to start for this team because Amini Silatolu got hurt at various points. And that, that was like series, season three for Silatolu and season seven. Like, you know, Amini Silatolu seven years into his NFL career was was being viewed as a start, was given first team starting reps to begin training camp for this team. And, you know, I mean, Sotolo might be a lovely man. I'm, I'm not hitting on him personally, but you can't keep giving people chances. Like, ultimately, you you have to be a bit detached. And, and when when it becomes clear you have a player who is better than another player, even if the, the, the worst player is the one who you've got more assets in, invested in, you, you have to move on. You can't keep, you know... There, there are too many teams who've kept playing players because they spent a high pick on them. You, know, they re-signed the quarterback because they, they spent. You know, the Rams re-signed Jared Goff because he had a mildly okay season and he was the first overall pick. And it would have looked ridiculous if they just let him walk. But they probably should have just let him walk. You, know, you, you, you have to be a bit more detached than I think some people have been historically. You can't keep. You know, the Bucks might actually move on from from Jameis Winston, and that's 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 progress because while he led the league in passing yards and touchdowns he also threw 30 interceptions yeah yeah and according to him in his end of season press conference he's balling check the sheets let's do since this is the great british drafting show and the and the first episode of 2020 uh tell me who the panthers are going to draft with the seventh pick give me give me the name you don't have to tell me who it is just or you don't have to tell me a lot about him but seventh pick make your call right now Put your flag in the uh, ground. I, I think Derek Brown is the guy who is going to have to be deposed. I'll put it that way. All Not right. Because I think he's necessarily an unmissable prospect, though I think he is very good, don't get me wrong. But this is not a draft that's stacked with like top-tier, can't-miss prospects. And he clearly like he would make sense for the Panthers, I think. Uh, I think that Jeff Okuda is going to fall, and they will snap <laughs> him up at... Seven. That is my call. I'm putting my flag in the ground right there. Thank you, Vincent Richardson, for joining me, Josh Klein, on the Great British Drafting Show. And I am sorry to all the listeners that I did not do more of that British accent, but I'll give you a little bit of it. What's a shame. 
I know, right? Uh, when I do my accent, does what what region of England do I sound like I'm from? It's kind of this weird sort of semi-London accent, but, you know, Dick Van Dyke-esque. Yeah, I sound like I'm from London. I'm actually just doing a little bit of a mix of one time I heard somebody do an impression of John Lennon, and that's what I tried to do. And then also the, you sound like you're from London. That's I, it. I think the thing is, is, all Americans think we all sound like that. And, and, and yet I have one friend who does actually sound like that, and it just proves every American right, and it's so annoying. Well, we are American, so inherently we are correct. Uh, the Great British Drafting Show. Uh, check us out. Make sure you rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your local podcast. Vincent, cheers. Cheers.